the fight for the bite continues. This is another episode of the special podcast series supported by Patagonia that we are running during the delegation visit to uh, Equinor's AGM, which is actually happening on Wednesday here in uh, Stavanger. This episode of the podcast is a really fortunate one. I had the chance to sit down and chat with Green politician and all our nice guy, Christopher Robin Haug, uh, in Oslo. He was the first politician basically in Norway who was willing to really step up and begin a- begin asking questions in the parliament about the activities and proposed drilling of Equinor in Australia, in the Great Australian Bight. Uh, he's become quite a hero for many Australians and, and you know, it was, it was really good to find a chance to sit down with him. He's a really busy guy and talk about, you know, some of the political elements behind this. We, we dive into, uh, you know, the sovereign wealth fund that kind of draws money from this uh, these oil activities and, and looking at some of the bigger picture um, aspects of oil drilling uh, in the bite and in other sensitive uh, marine environments and basically on planet earth in light of the threat of climate change so this is a really special podcast episode it was super informative uh, for me to sit and listen to and uh, I hope that you get something you know you learn something new from this uh, really great interview with Christopher Robin Haug thanks so the paddle out happened yesterday and the numbers were more significant than what we really hoped or anticipated. Uh, I'm now here as part of this special Fight for the Bite radio podcast series for Nordic Surfers magazine with a green politician, not, well, literally and figuratively actually, he's wearing a green <laughs> sweater right now, but um, I need to try not to butcher your name now. So it's Christopher Robin Haug. Yeah, you can just say Christopher Robin. Okay, Christopher Robin works. works. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, thank you for joining me for this um, special series, this well, uh, special podcast series about the fight for the bite. Um, I thought it'd be great to, um, I mean, it's a rare privilege to sit and talk to a politician about anything, you know, like out face to face. So I really appreciate this opportunity. Um, how do you, how did you bring this issue into the parliament itself? Was it really you the first person to talk about it, the fight for the bite in the, in the Norwegian parliament? Well, yes. Yeah. Uh, and I think this might sound strange for Australians since mm-hmm. the fight for a bite is such a huge issue there. Yeah. Uh, most Norwegians are still unaware mm. about this whole thing, yeah. uh, which makes sense if you think about it. I mean, the Norwegian government has no interest in people knowing. Uh, Norwegian oil industry has no interest in people knowing. Uh, so there is basically just the opposition uh, and people who are really, really passionate about this thing, which are aware in Norway, most people in Norway, even environmentally conscious people have no idea that this is happening that there's a Norwegian state-owned company that is basically trying to drill for oil in the bite. So this is the thing that we in the Green Party uh, took to Parliament. And it's the reason why is kind of because uh, the Green Party is a global movement. So the Australian Greens with uh, Sarah Hansen-Young and her team are working very, uh, very hard on this in Australia. So we're basically the Norwegian arm of the Green Party, uh, which is good when it comes to a a situation like this, where where you kind of need global action to fight global uh, Mm. companies and global problems. So we're we're able to cooperate. And uh, the way I see it, there there are basically three actors who can stop the 
uh, stop the oil exploration and basically snap their fingers and save the mine at any point in time. Mm -hmm. It's the Australian government that mm -hmm. can say, no, we don't want the drilling in our pristine waters. Uh, there's Equinor who can do the sensible thing like Chevron and BP has already done and pull out. Yeah. And there's the Norwegian government which owns 67% of the shares. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the Australian Greens are working towards the Australian government and we're working yeah. towards the Norwegian government. Yeah. With uh, that quote, the last actor that you mentioned there, that no, the Norwegian government could snap its fingers and, and just say, no, don't do this because it's a 67% majority owner in Equinor. Exactly. Yeah. Is that, and that was kind of the line of questioning, I just actually re-watched your um, delivery of that speech in the parliament, and the petroleum minister kind of responded that the Norwegian state doesn't act in business affairs of its companies. Is that really accurate though? Is there any, is there any precedent already set by the Norwegian government snapping its fingers on other issues or is this actually a big step for a Norwegian government to take? Well it's a, it's a, it's a common excuse mm. but it's a very interesting um, it's a very interesting argument because I mean Norway is famous for among other things our, our giant sovereign fund mm -hmm. which is basically um, pretty good way of, uh, of taking care of the profits from the oil yeah. industry. Uh, so that's, that's one good thing about Norway, uh, is that we are putting the money from destroying the planet into good use for our own people, at mm. least. I mean, you could just waste it, yeah. as many other countries have. I think Australia's been very good at wasting uh, mineral yeah, exactly. wealth. So, so we kind of got half right, yeah. uh, but we forgot the part that these people, who are at least profiting like the Norwegian pe yeah. people are at least profiting mm. uh, from destroying the environment. We forgot that these people also need the environment. Mm. So hopefully we're going to get there at some point. Yeah. Uh, but uh, this uh, sovereign fund is invested in a lot of companies yeah. all over the world. And the um, Norwegian government has this policy and the um, people in government are very proud of this. Yeah that they are taking an active part in the ownership. Yeah. No matter how small the percentage is, yeah. they try to be represented at each and every of the big uh, meetings for, for investors in those companies okay. uh, to make sure that they are taking a social responsibility, etc., etc. So okay. They're very proud of that. Apparently, somehow, this rule does not apply when it comes to uh, being a majority shareholder yeah. in Equinor, which is a very, I mean, they used to be called Stat Oil yeah. because it's basically representing the Norwegian government. Yeah. Norwegian word for government is Stat. Stat. Yeah. So it's basically government oil. Yeah. Uh, and somehow this rule does not apply there. Yeah. There they are very, very vocal about having this whole hands off approach. Yeah. They say that, oh, a lot of people are now used to this hands off approach. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's completely backwards from not only how they manage all the other assets, yeah. uh, but also from how any private investor would act. Mm. I mean, the Got only it. reason why you would be the majority shareholder in the company is because you actually want to have a decisive vote. Yeah. Uh, if not, then you would limit your exposure by having a smaller percentage yeah, yeah, in the yeah. company. Yeah. So it makes no sense from a financial point of view. It mo makes no sense from how the government are handling all their other assets. Yeah. Um, it's a very, I, it's to me, of course, it's a very unconvincing argument. Yeah, yeah. Um, with this though, are they, like, I, I think I understand um, that this is a difficult issue in some respects for Norwegians because this wealth creation device or, you know, this 
this, I guess, policy of extraction and sale of this oil has been a very national pride, a source of national pride, I guess, for a very long time for many Norwegians. Yeah. Um, the politicians who are kind of holding back on making a decisive move here, um, they seem to, I, I guess my interpretation is that they're trying to kind of play to the, they don't want to destroy people's national pride by kind of stopping their big company from doing something. How does a politician navigate that? You know, like how, how, what are the, it seems quite challenging for a politician to navigate this when votes are at stake and things like that. So like, how, how do you see this playing out in the political side? Uh, it's obviously clear for the Greens what, what's gonna, what you want to do, but right. how about these other parties? How, how do they change in a way that's acceptable for them, do you think? Uh, yeah, it's it's very difficult. As you, there's this uh, old saying that um, never expect a man to change his mind on an issue if his salary depends on him not changing his mind on yeah. the issue. So we sort of have this this narrative, this story in Norway that um, has been quite exaggerated, actually. Yeah. Uh, actually, uh, perhaps by the industry, perhaps by some actors for political gain that basically all our money comes from oil and if anyone were to mess, touch, with, it. mess with that yeah, yeah. cash flow in some way then the entire society would stop okay uh, which is not which is very untrue actually because i mean we have this this sovereign wealth fund mm. and it's true that the um, uh, each and every year we get some money for our budget yeah from this fund, but that's from the profits from that fund. Yeah. You have this special rule that you can only uh, withdraw so much money each year from the fund as it's generating profits. Yeah. So whenever we get um, a lot of money from the oil industry, which comes in in taxes yep. uh, every year, those money are put directly, I mean, they're put on the, on the state budget, but then put directly into this uh, oil fund. Yeah. So we are never ever spending any of the money that comes in from the from the industry directly, sure. which means that if somehow those money were to disappear overnight, yeah. I mean, let's imagine some hackers or terrorists yeah. just stealing all that money. So next, from next year and forever, all those money magically disappear. We won't yeah. get a single dime from the oil industry for all foreseeable future. Yeah. The Norwegian reaction would be like, oh no, what about our schools? What about our hospitals? Yeah, what yeah. about all our welfare? Well, actually, they would be exactly the same as this year. Yeah. Because we get that from the surplus, from the already existing money. Yeah. So the only thing that we're using, the money that we now get from the petroleum industry, is to make that fund even bigger. Yeah. So... And let's be real here. Yeah. It's massive already, right? That's what you're saying. Like, it, this fund is like... It's thousands of billions. Notoriously of, yeah. large. Um, so what you're saying essentially is like the, 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 the money at stake that a lot of people in the community and in the broader Norwegian yeah. uh, population, they worry about if, oil, if the oil industry gets messed around with, yeah. um, it's actually not the case because the money's already there, like the yeah. bank is already full of cash yeah. and it's only the, the profits or the surplus from that account that is used for the budget in the Norwegian state. Yeah, mm. so they're being told that uh, their welfare is at stake. Mm. I mean, even I, I have also challenged the Norwegian Prime Minister on this yeah. in Parliament, and basically her response is, oh, we need to think about jobs, and we need to think about the welfare. Yeah. So one might question how many jobs we get from drilling in the Australian bite. That's, That's one question. question. Yes. And the jobs you guys might lose if yeah. something goes wrong. Yeah. Uh, but um, 
and also the enormous costs of this project. Yeah. I mean, that's our main argument. Like those those millions and millions yeah. uh, could be spent on make, creating renewable jobs, yeah. which are gonna be like competitive for the future. Yeah. Uh, I mean, all the petroleum jobs are only competitive as long as people don't take climate change seriously. Yeah. Uh, the moment people actually start doing that and start buying less petroleum, mm. then all those jobs are incredibly, incredibly uh, unsafe. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so it's a it's a pretty strange line of reasoning for someone who doesn't buy that narrative. Yeah. But if you buy that narrative, it all makes perfect sense, of course. Yeah, of course. Um, when it comes to one of the interesting parts of this, I think for Australians who would be listening to this and Norwegians who are listening to this, um, there are similarities, right? The 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 challenge between or the success of Lufthansa with the with the Labor Party now kind of changing its policy, I guess. Yeah. Um, that's a pretty big deal for Norwegian society, right? Like that's quite unprecedented for for a large party like that to change its mind. Yeah. What how what did it take for them to change their mind? I'm sure the Greens probably had something to do with the pressure or what. But where well, did that come yeah, from? Yeah, but also uh, we have to give a lot of credit to the um, environmental organisations okay. in Norway. Not only like the established ones, but there are all sorts of grassroots movements okay. pop around, uh, popping up around this. A lot of people who have been fighting for many many years. Yeah to make this happen. I mean, I guess in Australia, you probably have this view of Norwegians being, oh, of course they would protect their own nature, etc., etc. I'm sure that argument gets thrown around. Yeah, yeah. but I mean, Lofoten was basically Nor Norway's bite. Yeah. Uh, and the fight was just as fierce. Mm. And the resistance seemed just as strong, uh, or, or maybe even stronger. Mm. So, so it's actually an, an incredible achievement by Norwegian environmentalists to manage to get uh, at least, I mean, this period it has been temporarily safe. Yeah. Uh, the Norwegian government has said, oh, we will not touch this during this uh, four-year period. Yeah. But since the Labour Party is now also saying, like, okay, maybe we will also agree yeah. not to drill in the Norwegian bite, mm. in Lofoten, yeah. um, it seems like that fight may have been won in the more long-term perspective as well yeah but, but it was a, a long hard fight but it's still ironic that a lot of Norwegians are now very adamant that it would be insane to drill in Lofoten yeah uh, and yet today even after virtually all of Norway has realized this yeah we are sending our own state-owned company to drill in Australia's Lofoten yeah, yeah, yeah. doing exactly the same thing that we have fought so very hard yeah. for them not to do in our own waters. As far as I understand the, uh, the fight for the Lofoten bite, yeah. as you said, um, there are many different stakeholders in that fight and maybe that's a part of its success. It managed to kind of capture the imaginations and the concerns of, of the whole spectrum of the community. Yeah. Um, do you think um, this kind of ability to capture that wide, to throw a wide net um, is an important part of success in campaigns like this. Like, is that the is that the key? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, I mean, there have been many studies and surveys of people how much they're willing to give up for environmental reasons, etc. Yeah. And marketing studies, etc. When they you go walk into a store, who will actually when it comes to purchasing power, purchasing or, yeah. power, and when it, when your wallet, when your own wallet is on the line, yeah. 
who will actually spend more for a more environmentally friendly product. Yeah. Let's say it's around 6% of the population. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Even in Scandinavia as well. Yeah. But there is another 20% which can be persuaded when there are other benefits as well. Yeah. I mean, when there are like perhaps health benefits. Yeah. Uh, or they can see positive consequences in the local communities, etc. Yeah. So I think that sort of uh, uh, alignment of interests uh, is very important. Mm. And I believe that's the case not only for the Bight and for Lofoten, but also for like uh, climate change, mm. what we see in the loss of biodiversity in nature today. The problem is that the the other interests, like you have, you have an interest for your own health, mm. you have an interest for your uh, children's welfare, mm. you have an interest for job creation, etc. All of those consequences will hit us a couple of years down the line. Mm. So it's not immediately evident today that all these interests are actually aligned. Mm. So people who don't want to take action can always make this story saying like, oh no, no, that's against job creation, or we need to spend money on health now yeah. rather than to save the environment. Uh, and then they don't mention that the deteriorating environment will seriously impact our health yeah. in the long term. It's a difficult one, and I want to just grab onto this because you mentioned the B word, and I think we overlook it very often in these environmental discussions. But biodiversity risks yeah. are like, for me, increasingly as I look at this and kind of, I guess, being Australian, I live in Sweden, but being an Australian, climate change has become such a political issue that yeah. it's really hard to actually talk about and try yeah. and persuade people because yeah. there's actually, you know, the, the science is undermined all the time in the political sphere in Australia. Like, there's people who don't believe it's like yeah. a thing, which yeah. is kind of nuts. And I'm sure there's some in Norway, but maybe less so. Yeah. Um, but biodiversity seems to be this thing that's even maybe more complex, yeah. but we do care about species loss like we do actually feel a, a certain type of yeah. pain um how do you look at those two kind of issues or threats climate change on the one hand and biodiversity on the other which one is kind of the the bigger kind of oh, risk yeah, in your opinion an, that's an excellent question there's a very good report uh from uh, stockholm resilience center yeah uh, about the planetary boundaries yep they basically identified uh i don't remember quite if it was eight or nine planetary boundaries. Yeah. It's made this very striking sector chart of it, showing how close we are to reaching the planetary boundaries yeah. for, for various factors uh, and how much we have surpassed in some cases. Yeah. If you take a look at that chart, you will see that we are all, we are like way beyond the boundaries when it comes to biodiversity. Yeah. We've just blown the scale. Yeah. And we see that every day with all the yeah. species going extinct. Know, know. Uh, so that's like a very acute situation. Yeah. And the same with, the, with a couple of other things, like the um, phosphor and, and nitrogen cycle. Yeah. And no one seems no to be one talking talks about, about that. that, which is like an incredible <laughs> disaster. Good luck with that one. Yeah, well, but maybe that will be the next <laughs> yeah, thing. Yeah, hopefully. In a half year, we'll get some reporting. We did like, an interview for the podcast on the phosphorus cycle oh, recently yeah, to, to cover that, because it's a complex thing yeah, as well. Nobody talks about yeah, it. Yeah, but you know, in, when all the media goes tired of the biodiversity <laughs> crisis, yeah. they were like, Oh, this new thing. And everyone's be like, have you heard about the phosphorus cycle? And we got to do something. But that's the way it was with climate change as well, yeah, you yeah, know. Yeah, and, and totally. it, though. So it's good to know that at least the scientists know what's going on. Yeah, that's uh, true. But even that chart shows that some territories are yet unexplored. Yeah. Like with, with, um, with the new materials like uh, microplastics. Yeah and nanotechnology, etc. Yeah. I mean, my education is originally a nanotechnologist. Okay. I work with, with uh, energy 
materials technology and nanotechnology at the University cool. of Oslo. Um, so, I mean, that's going to be a huge thing, etc. But the, we just don't have enough science to map how big the problem is yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's also going to be huge. But um, the interesting part is, if you look at the Stockholm Resilience Center report, you will see that climate change is sort of like in the yellow, not yet in the red. Yeah. So you might be persuaded to think like, oh, that's not such a big problem yeah. as the loss of biodiversity yeah. and the nitrogen phosphorus cycle. The problem, however, with the climate change is it's such a force multiplier. Yeah. So, and it's also a very big ball that's rolling with like with all these lock-in effects with all the investments that's been done in fossil fuels. Exactly. All the resources that have been found and people have been paying to make sure that it gets taken up and burned and put yeah. into the atmosphere, etc. So it's such a huge issue still, yeah. even though it hasn't yet become as acute, even though we're starting to see a lot of the consequences yeah. already. Yeah. Um, so that's why it's important to not suddenly forget about climate change, yeah. would be very dangerous, because it will make loss of biodiversity even more rapid yeah. if we don't handle it. Yeah. So we, we really need to deal with all the planetary boundaries at once. At, at the one time. And yeah. that sounds like a daunting task. It does. But I mean, I'm, an, I'm a natural scientist by education. Yeah. And uh, I don't know if it's good news or if it's bad news, but all I've learned from science is that technically these problems are incredibly easy to solve. Yeah, right. I mean, even in, take a look at climate change, even in the 70s during the oil crisis, mm. we got functioning uh, solar cells, uh, wind power, we already had pretty well-functioning hydropower. Yeah. The only problem is that as soon as the oil price goes down again, everyone's like, oh, no, wait, we don't need this wind. Yeah. We're not going to invest in that. Exactly. So the, the technologists have, in Norway, there's this um, expression to be a, a techno-optimist or a technology optimist. It's going to save the day. Yeah. Mm. Um, which is, I mean, it's correct because we have a lot of great technology that would totally save the day. Yeah. Uh, but a lot of people use it as an excuse. They say mm. like, oh, I'm just waiting yeah. for this new fantastic technology that will somehow emerge. I mean, I have faith in the technologists. Yeah. They will think of something. Yeah, well, we did think of something. Yeah. We thought of something 40 freaking years ago <laughs> when we invented solar cells and windmills and hydropower. The technologists have yeah. done their job. Yeah. It's the politicians who are not implementing the solutions, yeah, exactly. which are, in theory, very easy to implement. Totally. The problem is, of course, a society which is now arranged around this fossil fuel value yeah. chain. Everyone, everything in our society is is basically streamlined to use as many fossil fuels as mm. as much energy as entirely possible, yeah. and. Um, Basically, our society is a machine that's designed to take resources from the planet and mm. from human beings mm. and make it into profit. Yeah. And uh, that needs to change. Yeah. And that is a big change, isn't it? I yeah. mean, it's a daunt that's a daunting one maybe as well to figure out. But I think it is interesting to, um, to note that the, the, the technologies of today are actually quite um, available and ready to be deployed. Um, the yeah. funny thing, though, I think I need to, I'm not correcting you on this, but um, you know, hydropower was actually around like hundreds of years yeah. ago, right? You know, we yeah. used to have wheels and streams yeah. and just use the power from that to do stuff. I, I think it's remarkable to think that often we forget that we had renewable yeah. sources of energy before the Industrial Revolution came. Yeah. And, you know, it was just that our production outcomes were limited based on that type of usage of water or wind. Yeah. But it is kind of remarkable that these things are kind of, they've been obvious to us for a very long time. Yeah. And yet we still can't manage to 
make it the kind of the source of energy that our societies run on. Um, when it comes to, uh, it, this is back to the political um, kind of discussion on, on the Norwegian side, is there a problem, I guess, in the way that politics is done in that on the one hand, you've got environmental policy. So I'm sure I haven't done all my research on the Norwegian policy, but I understand that there's probably a commitment to address climate change and there's probably commitments to try to reach the Paris Agreement and kind of sign on to that and do what has to be done there. But on the other hand, you've got um, resource policy and it's almost like they've been separated on probably on purpose. So like I know that in Australia, you know, we always talk about um, we're going to put a million solar panels on, or a million rooftops, and that's our environmental policy. But don't look over here while we dig up the coal, because yeah. that's a different thing, and yeah. we'll export it over there. So they're not our emissions, they're their emissions. Yeah. Um, is that something, how do we fix that? Because there seems to be this kind of disconnect between extraction and environmental policy to stop climate change. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if you talk to a grifter, mm -hmm. that's called the bait and switch. Oh, yes, okay. Uh, you, you say, okay, now we're going to fix this uh, climate change issue yeah and you you show this like oh, okay uh, we have this, this great solutions we're gonna fix the whole thing now yeah and when uh, people are say okay let's pay for that let's pay f with our votes and vote for you guys then they run to the back of the store yeah and they take the fantastic camera that you were looking at yeah. out of the box and they put some cheap junk in yeah, inside exactly. that doesn't work and they exactly. come back it's like see yeah like just getting some more electric cars on the road, this yeah. will totally fix it. Exactly. And we have some, we have, we're going to build a lot of windmills here and there, usually in like pristine nature areas as well. Yeah. Uh, and we, we, can just, we can just keep going, do exactly the same thing yeah. we're doing, but just like make the edges a little bit greener. Yeah. So, so that's basically what's happening. It's very interesting to see. In the 90s, you had the great um, uh, report coming from the United Nations uh, it was called uh, Our Common Future. Yeah. It's like the big first big political document on climate yeah. change. And it was interesting to see how Norwegian parties reacted. Yeah. Based virtually every party in Norwegian government, except for the the um, very um, what do you call that? Uh, kind of a right wing liberalistic party. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, called themselves the Progress Party. Yeah. Uh, they were not on board with that, but all the other parties were basically. Uh, scrambling to make them as much promises as possible yeah like from the very left to the very right like oh we're gonna have the best environmental policies we're gonna okay. do this we're gonna do this we're gonna do this everyone was super excited and we're totally gonna fix this within a decade everyone will totally on board and yeah. then when you look at the emission records yeah. Norway they were just slowly slowly climbing climbing yeah. I mean now they're sort of stabilized by necessity yeah. but um, uh, it's very interesting, to, and when you have an inconvenient truth with Al Gore, etc. Oh yeah, all the no, now we're really, now we're really gonna do it. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's yeah. time around. It's yeah. really gonna happen. Yeah. And they're like, and uh, I mean, when the left wings are in charge, the right wingers like, oh no, we're gonna be way more aggressive. Yeah. And when the right wings are in charge, the left wings like, oh no, we we're gonna yeah. be way more aggressive. So I mean, almost all the parties in the parliament have had their chance. Yeah. And we see that both the, the blues and the reds, the capitalists and the socialists, yeah. they fall through when they yeah. come to power. And I believe that's because of, uh, uh, I mean, a, a political party is kind of like an animal. Yeah. They will do what's in their DNA, what they've been made for, what yeah. their instincts are. 
And when you look at it historically, the right wing, the blue parties, they are working a lot for uh, like individual rights to yep. protect people from, from um, government intervention. Yeah. Uh, they work a lot for the um, uh, industries, for, um, uh, for companies, etc. Yeah. And both of those things are super important. Yeah. I mean, it's a very, very vital part of it. Uh, but whenever they come into a dilemma, they need to prioritize, they will always prioritize business. Yeah. Uh, and the same with the socialists, the Reds. I mean, they were created for the workers' rights, yeah. uh, and which was incredibly important. Yeah. Like a lot of a basic welfare system, uh, we can we can thank the socialists for. Yeah. Uh, but when it, again, when they come into a dilemma, it's like, oh yeah, should we have a little bit more benefits for for the workers? Should we protect today's uh, jobs rather yeah. than going for tomorrow's jobs? Yeah. They seem to fall down on the okay. Let's think about the workers. Yeah. So that's why we need a new, I mean, the Green Party was founded on basically, we have basically three interest groups. Yeah. It's uh, other people who are, whose voices are not heard today. Yep. Everything from refugees to people who are very poor to people who are just disenfranchised. Yeah. Even like the so-called angry young men demographics yeah. are people who are not being taken seriously and included properly in today's yeah. society. Uh, and you have nature and the other animals. Yeah. It's a second interest group, and there's futures, future generations. Yeah. So I believe that we need to have that kind of DNA in order to actually address these issues. Uh, so what you're kind of saying, well, what you, what you're saying is that these other parties don't have it in them to well, deal with the problems. That you we have, have to remember, of course, that I'm from a particular political party <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. who is not impressed with the other political parties <laughs> yeah, who sure. all had their run. Yeah. Uh, for I mean the the. Parties on the red side were in government for eight years. Yeah. Nothing happened on climate and environment. Yeah. Now we've had six years with the blues. Yeah. Nothing's happened. I mean, they all do these little things. Yeah. Like you said, oh, we're going to put some solar cells here. Or yeah. Some green yeah. Cells. So, I mean, if they would change their their ideology or, I mean, we we see that when the when the workers movement really gained grounds and yeah. the, the Labour Party in Norway basically took over, Yeah. that forced the 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 blues parties on the right wing to actually take this whole welfare model yeah there seriously. was some shift there yeah but they needed to be knocked out of office first yeah, yeah, for sure. them to take it seriously before that they were there was a lot of talk yeah and uh, oh they were going to really do a lot for the workers you have no idea yeah. and election after election people were like no it's not happening it's just the talk it's not yeah. the walk yeah. which is what we see today with the migrant policies yeah so you you basically need to put shift seats in office yeah and then the other parties will understand because i mean even the right-wing parties in norway today are protective of the, our welfare model yeah uh, it, they just want to adjust some things with the taxes etc etc yeah and i mean if you're a left-wing politician you will say that their adjustments are actually destroying the foundations of the sure. model etc but they are still very um yeah very concerned about welfare things yeah so but in politics there's only one currency and it's votes. Yeah. So politicians are used to getting a lot of flack for everything. Yeah. So even with big protests, even with people writing angry letters in yeah. the press, uh, shouting at politicians, writing hateful messages and stuff that are really bad which are going on, uh, political parties don't care. Mm. They only care about votes. So until the votes change, yeah. I mean, they can make some adjustments. Yeah. It, that's, that's how the... 
Oh yeah, uh, he, comes, for the Biden he comes the man. Yeah, <laughs> he's just he's just walking into the uh, yeah, into really the hotel we're recording. Right yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he's both just as equally starstruck with each other, as far yeah. as I understand. He hey, thinks, are you on? Where's he interviewing? Yeah. That's cool. It's it's yeah. funny. Yeah, <laughs> come back down in a second, and we'll. No what are you doing? You just had a die-in this morning, didn't you? Die-in, just met with Equinor, the whole deal, man. Oh, wow. Yeah, full on. Cool. Least, yeah. All right, well, you're next on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. So coming back to Equinor then, because I just wanted to touch on that political part of it and how does it all work, but um, coming back to Equinor and with the protests, particularly what happened yesterday and things like that, are you saying, you know, is that effective? Is that moving the needle? Because I think reputation seems to be yeah. one of the arguments that you've brought up in your um, in your kind of speech in the parliament, saying that what, what about the reputational risk of this? Yeah. Um, and it's not a, you're not even talking about climate risk. You, I mean, you're just saying, what about the reputation if there's a spill? Or what yeah, about the I, reputation? I would assume that all educated people yeah. are aware of the uh, uh, environmental risk and the, yeah. and the climate risk. But I mean, uh, Equinor is a state-owned company. Yeah. So everyone who is paying even the slightest bit of attention knows that the Norwegian government can, even though they say, oh, we, we have this habit of not doing it, and everyone yeah. are totally on board with that. Everyone still knows that they can just yeah. snap their fingers yeah. and and uh, make this whole problem go away. Exactly. So if something were to happen in the bite, then people would know that this is the Norwegian government yeah. that has been voted in by the Norwegian people yeah. who allowed this to happen. Yeah. And I don't think that's a fantastic PR campaign for Norway. No, we like to think of ourselves as well as you say, as nature-loving, caring for the environment. Yeah. Uh, and as a responsible country. I mean, whenever there's a war, we're always like, hey, we can start some peace talks. Yeah. <laughs> we can fix things. People have, peop we think that people have faith in Norway because S Scandinavians do love that. I think broadly, they like to kind of make sure everybody can get along. I think yeah, it's like a and, good and quality. we sort of see ourselves that as uh, having this, okay, maybe we're not really famous in the world, but yeah. if people know us, they think we're, oh yeah, they're good at taking care of things, yeah. responsible, people like that. And I don't think that's the first thing you think about if you have a giant oil spill in the bite. Yeah, yeah. And also, I mean, I guess with Equinor itself, though, like uh, sticking on them, yeah. uh, they were Statoil like only last year, right? Yeah. So they've changed their name to Equinor. Yeah. Is there a real strategy, do you think, inside that company to shift to uh, renewables and things like that? Like, is, is this the starting point for them and the this fight for the bite has just come at a really bad time and they're being kind of, they might be pushed faster towards that transition. Is that one option here that's on the table or what do you think? Or is it just a classic greenwash case? Well, they change their name, hope everyone doesn't pay attention. Well, I mean, we've seen a lot of uh, petroleum companies before, like BP with Beyond Petroleum, a lot of campaigns yeah. where they've gone all... Yeah, they've rebranded, got yeah, a new message. Yeah, and... really heavy marketing and yeah. a lot of messaging. Yeah. And when a couple of years go by and you don't really see any changes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, substantive changes. Yeah. They all have some projects here and there, but it's not really the transition that we need. Yeah. Um, so it's, if you cry wolf enough times, people stop believing. Yeah. But I think a lot of us were very hopeful last year when they changed their name and said like, you know what, we're, we're changing our name for a reason. Yeah. Because we are, uh, we're seeing the way uh, the world is turning yeah and it would be easier to believe them now because if you see all the financial institutions in the world all the banks yeah they're pulling their money out of petroleum and yes. they're putting it into renewable yeah so you would think that a big uh, 
uh, well-run company like Equinor. Yeah. It has an incredible amount of really skilled, knowledgeable individuals yeah. in it would see that yeah. and sort of really put their money where the smart money goes. Yeah. So I think this bite issue is a very dangerous one for Equinor and their reputation as well because a yeah. lot of politicians like me, a lot of environmentalists in Norway, a lot of mm. the people who sort of kind of bought into the Equinor thing mm. are now starting to question like, wait, if they were really, really serious about yeah. going for renewable, why are they doing this project which is so risky mm. on the other side of the planet mm. even like bp and chevron which don't necessarily have a super high standing in norway yeah. as like i mean we're way more proud of our own equinor yeah uh why are they doing this yeah, it makes yeah. no sense i mean it's even financially risky you have to make all this infrastructure are yeah, you really yeah, gonna yeah. get your money back from that project yeah it seems so so not aligned with everything they've been talking about yeah how all so I mean, this is an, a very uninformed guess from my part, yeah. but just looking at how many companies work and organizations and, and just speaking from personal experience, yeah. I would just assume that there are different people within Equinor who have different ideas. Yeah. And maybe someone felt that they won with uh, getting through this Equinor strategy. Yeah. And then some other people might think that's not a good strategy and you might have some internal conflicts there. It seems like that, right? I mean, that's my take on it as yeah. well. There, there must be, to me, there must be some people inside that company yeah. who are very legitimately trying to transition the company to yeah. what the world needs and to, and for good business reasons, yeah. not only moral or ethical reasons for yeah. the environment or, or, you know, for the planetary health. Yeah. But there must be people inside there who are like, no, I just like to drill deep holes and I want to keep doing it. Yeah. and. I don't really care about your name change or your rebranding. Like, it seems like there must be these conflicts inside the company. Yeah, well, it's it's hard, impossible to tell from yeah. outside, of course. But I do know from, I, I used to work a lot in, um, uh, in, um, in the private sector with the consultancies. Yeah. And my impression of most companies in Norway and most industries in Norway is that they are actually ready for like a huge proper green shift. Yeah. Uh, they just need two things. They need to be told which direction to go. Yeah. They're not climate scientists. They're nah. not experts in biodiversity. So they need the government to gather the um, knowledge from the sciences yeah. and make policies which shows that we need to go in this direction. Yeah. We need to shift from, from petroleum to renewables. Yeah. We need to shift our transport from this to that. We need to stop hogging all the land from nature. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, and all these things, so they need to be told which direction to go, and then they need uh, equal terms with everyone. Uh -huh. So they actually need strong regulations. Uh -huh. And from my impression is that they are ready for strong regulations, because the rules of the game. They just need exactly, to know how, what, where are the goalposts. If and the how rules do I of the game changes for everyone equally, yeah. then that's great for those who are willing to compete and innovate. And yeah. a lot of them are very competitive and yeah. very innovative. They and just, they're used to regulation here too, right? It's not as if like. You know, in Scandinavia, it's a place that is quite regulated yeah. uh, compared to, say, the US or maybe Australia has regulations. But Scandinavia seems to be pretty 
structured and very planned out, and then businesses just get about it. Yeah, within and, those and a lot of a lot of companies are actually used to seeing that as a yeah. competitive advantage. Yeah. You see, you get some some strong regulations here that yeah. really push in the direction that you want to go. Yeah, and they're like, this is brilliant. Yeah, we can outperform all the other ones exactly. because we're better at innovating. Yeah, we are more we are more skilled at what we're doing. Yeah, so the so they can get a, gain the competitive edge. Yeah. And that's kind of one of the things that all companies are looking for yeah. is how can we get a leg up at the competition? Yeah. What can be our competitive edge? Yeah. So by having very um, uh, strong regulations, you can actually give a lot of companies a competitive edge yeah. in the direction that is beneficial for the entire society. And yeah. my impression is that a lot of companies are really ready for that. They just need it to be equal because today when the, when the regulations are slack in that area, then there's no real reason for them they will only lose because mm. it sometimes costs more money yeah. to make a more environmentally friendly product. And when you put it on their shelves and it's twice as expensive as the other one, yep. and people can still buy the other one, that's what's going to happen. Yeah. But if the regulations are equal, yeah. uh, then that other product will not be made because yeah. they can no Doesn't longer fit. push the costs over to either humans in the third world yeah. or um, or in the, to the environment. Mm, exactly. So. With this company kind of thing, I think that was a really good thing to kind of talk about with that level, that equality of um, of uh, the framework, which is really interesting to me to hear that. Um, when it comes to Equinor, though, you know, like we've got like the big company Equinor with its uh, board of directors and its management and all this kind of stuff. But on the ground level, we've got just everyday workers who yeah. who just have a job. Yeah. And I think some of the um, feedback I've seen uh, within the surfing community in, in Norway, um, you know, and like we're gonna go to Stavanger and kind of be the AGM there. Yeah. And that's like, that's the heartland, right? Of yeah. the oil industry. Um, and there's a lot of surfers in that community. And a lot of them do work in the oil sector, of you know, course. they're part of the machine. Yeah. Um, but they are just individuals with mortgages and whatever. Like. What's the message, I guess, I just want to try and find out because I feel like there's this challenge at the moment um, where there's people who work in the industry and in Australia you have mining workers as well who surf and enjoy the ocean and enjoy nature, and, but they're miners. Yeah. How, where do they, where do they fit in this? Like, what can they do? Because, I mean, they're humans, they enjoy nature. Yeah. I'm sure they understand the problem. Yeah. How, how, what are they meant to do in this? Well, actually, uh, they're not that different from the rest of us. Yeah. Uh, just like they work in a, in a company, basically mm. like a, a structure, a system, uh, which is to a certain extent based on the premise of getting fossil fuels sure. from the ground, yeah. burning it and putting it into the air, which is a very bad thing. Yeah. Um, the same is true with the rest of society. Yeah. Like I said earlier, it's our society is built on the premise. We've built all these systems, which all hinge on on the exploiting nature and exploiting humans yeah. for profit. Yeah. Uh, and we, unless we want to sort of step out from society, yeah. we kind of have to live with that. Yeah. Which is difficult. Uh, I mean, I. My life is not completely sustainable. Mm. I mean, when I buy food at the store, it's I have to do a tremendous amount of work yeah. if I really want to make sure that every aspect of that is sustainable. Yeah. Most probably most of it is not. Yeah. And we can all do these things. We can all recycle more. We, yeah, can, sure. we, can, we can consume less, etc., etc. But I think it's very, very dangerous to put all the moral responsibility on each and every individual human being 
because that's kind of what has been tried mm. and it's certainly not working. No. There's a lot of psychological reasons for that. Mm. Uh, something called cognitive dissonance. Yep. When you know something is true, it's very hard to do that. Um, you end up doing the same thing you've always done yeah. and you need to somehow align that in your head. What you start to do is to avoid the issue. Yeah. You start to believe that maybe this issue is not as big as it used to be, etc. Yeah. etc. And I think that's more dangerous. Mm. Um, so, so my big idea is to get people to understand that this is a systemic issue. Uh -huh. uh, what we need to do is that, yes, it's very good when people, it's really a part of the solution, yeah. when people are consuming less, when people don't buy a car or they yeah. buy etc. It's brilliant, it's part of the solution, it's an inspiration to us all, but that is not the, necessarily the way we can solve this problem. Yeah. We need to change society into a society where the easiest and cheapest option mm. is the sustainable option. Yeah. And as I said before, technically, that is not all that difficult. Yeah. The difficult part is to exchange, like change the people who today run society and keeps it going in one direction yeah. with people who are willing to change society. And, and the transition period uh, is also a difficult one. Yeah. Because, I mean, you put all your money into a diesel car and all of a sudden it's getting more and more difficult to park it. Yeah. It's getting more and more expensive in the toll booths. That is happening in Oslo right now, right? Exactly. There's been bans on it's been those a huge cars. backlash yeah. towards green politicians who are willing to do that. Yeah. And and I mean, we uh, we know and we feel it too. I mean, a lot of the green politicians have a, a diesel car and are yeah. trying to get uh, kids to soccer practice, have to drive through sure. expensive toll booths, etc., etc. Uh, so it's true, it's it's a difficult thing to do. And of course, we can always say like, well, if we also uh, were in charge of the government, we have a lot of uh, a lot of social policies which we would like to put into measure, which would ease the transition for everyone. Yeah. But right now we have a, a right-wing government yeah. who's not too so keen on all those social... Yeah. So people sort of like, get squeezed between not getting the social support need from the government. Uh, and uh, in, in Oslo, uh, with the green policies, you, there's only so much you can do with social policies yeah. on the local level. Um, so, so there are difficult things in the in the transition yeah. period. So, so we need people to to support that as well. Mm. To say like, you know what? Yeah, maybe I will have to sacrifice a little bit. Yeah. But I know that the end result will be better. Yeah. And I mean, already now we're seeing a drop in, in local pollutions in Oslo. Yeah. And there were like hundreds of thousands of people living in, in at-risk areas. Yeah. And it's, it's been, I think it's been decimated yeah. over the past couple of years, yeah, which is right. just an incredible difference. Cool. I myself had to move from Oslo because my family had respiration, people in my yeah, family had respiration right. problems. Yeah, from the pollution. Yeah, so I'm now living in the outskirts outside. Yeah, cool. Um, so, but the people seem to be ready for that. Yeah. Okay. So then, just coming back to the, you know, to, to I guess like the, the individuals who might be working in this industry. Yeah. I guess what you're really saying is, we are all working in this industry. We are. I mean, at least in so Norway. So there's no there's no reason for anyone who who, who might work for Equinor, uh, or work for any other uh, geological, you know, exploration to feel a, a, a larger responsibility here because our whole society is built on the same thing. So we're all kind of in the same boat. Yeah, I mean, we, we all need to, we all have a shared responsibility. Yeah. It's, we, we who are not working in the oil industry, we can't just push it over and say like, oh, it's just you working in the oil industry because I'm driving the car which uses the oil, etc. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Uh, and that's all, it's a very dangerous 
like blame games yeah. are very dangerous and it's kind of like you can see it in a, in a Machiavellian perspective. Yeah. It really benefits the people who don't want change. Yeah, exactly. So they, and they are doing, I mean, you see with the youth protesting the climate, etc. Yeah. You have all these people going out and saying like, oh yeah, you're protesting the climate, but when you need to go to soccer practice, don't you ask your mom to drive you? Exactly. So it's basically trying to put groups against groups yeah. to make them fight each other yeah. and make action uh, ineffective. Yeah. So no, we, we need everyone on Team Planet, basically. Even yeah, even if you're working in the oil industry, of course there are things people can do from the inside. Yeah. But that's very difficult. Yeah. I mean, I've studied energy, and I've seen a lot of my fellow students go into oil industry, saying like, sure. "Oh, we're totally going to change things from the inside, yeah, making sure. it so much better." A couple of years later, a little, not not much have changed. Yeah. And they're like, "Oh yeah, but I've been thinking about this whole thing, and uh, oil might be great, etc., yeah. etc." So I mean, if you're part of the system, it changes you as well. Yeah. So. Uh, so I just think they have the same responsibility as the rest of us yeah. to find out how can they be the most effective. Yeah. What can they do, even if it's maybe they can be effective in their industry, mm. maybe the most effective thing they can do is to leave the industry, yeah. they have another job, or maybe they can stay in the industry but just vote for very strict regulations. Yeah. I mean, in theory, which would it would basically be um, basically be just dismantling the whole whole oil industry and just have like very very small operations but yeah. i mean in theory you could imagine having electrified oil platforms of some of the oil fields already running if you have some sort of like end use license agreement yeah where norwegian oil companies promise to only sell their oil to um, uh, to companies who are not going to burn it right so for plastics CO2. or whatever yeah, like there's like other uses chemicals medicines there's yeah. like there's a I lot mean, of uses for oil that we don't actually incredible amount of uses for yeah. oil. I mean, I know that as a chemist, it's yeah. called the uh, black gold for a reason. Yeah. There's a huge amount of things that you can use oil for, which could, in theory, yeah. not be as bad for the environment if you made sure the extraction was done in already established uh, oil yeah. wells and you make yeah. it um, electrified. And you just made sure to do recycle and take care of the... Yeah. Uh, Sustainable oil, but without yeah, the burning at the yeah, end. Yeah, but the volumes would be incredibly much lower. Exactly. So we would be basically just dismantling the whole oil, in, in oil industry. It would yeah. no longer be an industry. It would just be a couple of companies doing a very controlled operation. Yeah. But I mean, that's, that's a job. Way. Yeah. yeah. That's, yeah. that's, that's you know, something that's you could do. Yeah. And I mean, if, if the regional oil company said, we're trying to do that, that would be like, yeah. you could believe them on that perhaps. Yeah. Well, hey, to, to kind of wrap up, we've definitely gone to the to the limits. I think that we were beyond what I was hoping to gather here in this conversation. So thank yeah. you for that. It's been yeah. really interesting to learn so much. Yeah. Um, with the fight for the bite, with everything that's going on, how do you see the coming, uh, say, months ahead for this campaign or this action? Like, what do you think are the, are the important next steps? We've got the AGM on, on Wednesday and, yeah. and then moving forward. What is it that we can do to make sure that this is a success in your opinion? Yeah, well, Norwegian oil companies are uh, uh, proud companies, so it will probably take a lot of effort to yeah. make them uh, back down. But I believe that putting pressure from as many angles as possible uh, is a good strategy. Uh, so they even putting pressure directly on Equinor, yeah. but also I, they are, it's something called uh, license to operate. Mm -hmm. It's very important for petroleum companies, yeah. which is basically that they know they have the backing of, uh, of the politicians and social society as well. Okay. So if they can see that social society is not on board with this, 
and especially Norwegians. Yeah. Because Australians are raising their voices now. Yeah, it's evident. Yes. But in Norway, apart from like the climate process, where 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 stopping oil exploration was one of the major topics. I think we need to make a lot more Norwegians aware of this. Okay. As I said earlier, they're not really uh, aware of this, since okay. a lot of Norwegian actors don't really have anything to gain yeah. from Norwegians being all up in arms at this. But of course, if they see a lot of public resistance in Norway as well, yeah. that would be they would start to think about their reputation a lot more. Because if something goes bad in Australia, they can just pull out and it's like, oh well, yeah. we didn't want to do anything more in Australia anyway, so. Yeah our reputation might be destroyed there, but hey, at least in Norway, everyone loves us. So that's an important thing to, to, yeah. to raise awareness in Norway. And also, I believe, to put pressure on the politicians in government today. I mean, we have uh, our Minister of uh, Environment is yeah. from a, a party called the Left Party, which yep. is sort of a liberal party. Uh, which And they are concerned about the environment, yeah. but they're also supporting this since they're in government. Yeah. Um, but no one's talking about this issue, so they don't really feel any pressure to okay. to step in and talk to the rest of their uh, government. So I think just putting a lot of political pressure on this yep. uh, can be very effective. Because the moment Equinor no longer, whenever they pick up the phone to the ministry and they always get this, yeah, yeah, this bite thing is, is great, you have the support from the Norwegian government, or we're not going to meddle in your affairs as you're used to us not meddling in your affairs, they start hearing some other other stuff from the other end of the of the phone there, uh, being more concerned like, are you, are you sure that you've done all the calculations correctly down in the bite there? Because yeah. we've been hearing a lot of backlash, etc. Yeah. So just, and if they're more and more unsure, then the Equinor might think that, okay, we don't have enough backing yeah. from the government, we don't have enough backing from Norwegian people. Uh, maybe they start asking more critical questions about the information they're getting from Australia. Because yeah. uh, who knows what people are telling them down there to get them to drill in the Okay. Well, that's a really interesting way to finish things off, that yeah. lingering well, can, question. Is there any last kind of things you want to yeah, add? Yeah, I, I can just add one more thing. Because yeah. we're, we're very focused on the, on the uh, potential for oil spills yeah. here, which would of course be an enormous disaster. But we shouldn't forget that even exploration hmm. uh, puts a high toll on the, on the marine uh, uh, environment. Yeah, exactly. Uh, shooting seismic is, is very disturbing. Especially, it's in in the same uh, frequency range as yeah. the whale song. Yeah. And many years ago, I was on a, um, a part of crew on a sailboat. Yeah. In Lofoten, yeah. Like Norway's bite. Yeah. And we had a marine biologist on board, and we were going to listen for whales. Yeah. And we didn't hear any whales uh -huh. uh, in Lofoten. Instead, we we heard something that sounded like someone uh, hitting the underside of the boat with a hammer. It's like very rhythmically, like yeah. thump, thump. Uh, and so we asked him what that was, and he says, that's seismic shooting. That's seismic shooting from hundreds of kilometers away, because sound travels yeah. very fast underwater. And it's in the same frequency range as, as, the, um, uh, as the whales have. And, and the marine biologists said that they've even observed whales when they're doing seismic shooting in the areas, which experience so much pain from the noise mm. that they have to swim with their head above the water. And they can't hunt, and they can't communicate for mates, so some of them actually die yeah. um, from the seismic shooting itself. Mm. And that's that's not a that's not a um, disaster. That's not something going wrong. That's what you do as 
part of normal operations yeah. looking for oil. This is the acceptable operational yeah, standards, exactly. right? Exactly, and so that's what they're to a certain extent doing and that's what they want to do a lot of yeah. in the middle of the most vulnerable areas of the Great Australian Bight. Yeah. So that's something that really drives my motivation yeah. to try to stop this thing because, I mean, I've heard it myself and I've seen the whales in, in Lofoten and uh, we just can't do that to our fellow creatures. Nah. If you look at our DNA, we're all related, we're all yeah. cousins. Uh, we, I wouldn't sleep at night if I didn't know that I was doing everything I can to, uh, to stop drilling in the bike and to stop the oil exploration in the bike. We finished on biodiversity. Yeah. <laughs> thank you very much again. Well, thank you for having me. No problem. So that was Christopher Robin Haug, green politician in uh, Norway and all-around nice guy. You know, we dove into some pretty heavy subjects there and uh, I think it was a really great podcast because it really got to the, you know, this idea that um, that we're all beneficiaries of the oil industry. The system itself is built upon fossil fuels extraction Um it's important and I think something that we want to say as Nordic Surfers Magazine is that we understand that a lot of surfers do work in the uh, fossil fuel sector. They might work for Equinor, they might work in a coal mine in Australia, they could work in any in any kind of aspect or part of the, the, the value chain in the oil and gas industry and we're not here uh, trying to make them feel bad or to shame them about what they do because at the end of the day, all of us here who whether we work in the oil industry specifically or not we all benefit from it so the system itself is something that really is kind of on the agenda for change here and there is no one person who's you know more pure than the other uh we're all in this together and i think that most people do agree that we've got to stop drilling this stuff and we've got to start moving on and it's going to take all of us to do it so i think that was the main message at least that i got from uh that interview with christopher robin haug Huge thanks to him. A huge thanks to everyone involved in the campaign over here. There's really great people from Greenpeace, the Wilderness Society. Um, we've got the guys from Patagonia as well um, and many, many others. And uh, I hope that you get to meet a few more of them in this podcast series. So stay tuned for much more and thanks.